Justice Facts reveals the dark drama behind real-life criminal cases. Truth is stranger than fiction. That's what this podcast is all about. Just the facts. This is a story of kidnapping, murder, and immeasurable bravery. A two-year-old girl disappears from her family home in the Texas Hill Country just a day or so after the family's nanny fails to show up for work. The FBI and other law enforcement officers are at a loss and without a clue. Finally, a call to the family home. It's the kidnapper demanding a ransom. He has the girl. He demands that the father of the missing girl deliver cash and a car. Worried that the kidnappers won't play fair, a Texas Ranger volunteers to go with the father. But the plan is impossible. The car is too small for the Ranger to hide inside. A new plan and a larger car, and the Ranger seeks the help of another to help. Nothing goes as planned. Bullets fly, some survive, some do not. And the sad ending to the story waits for years to be told. The day the last Ranger died, January 22nd, 1987. And now my partner, Bill Johnston, is here with the rest of the story. Bill, tell us about first the history of the Rangers in the state of Texas. Well, when most people think of the Texas Rangers, when you hear that term, they think of a baseball team. Uh, they might think of law enforcement in some history based on a Western from the 60s or 70s or True Grit and its remake. But the Texas Rangers, uh, the, even that name, uh, which was meaningful as a group of law enforcement people or protectors to range around the colony of Texas, it all began in about 1823 when Texas was part of Mexico. And Stephen F. Austin, Moses Austin, uh, created a little colony in Texas with the permission of the Mexicans. And they had trouble on the edge of the colony, particularly with uh, raids by Comanches, with theft and lawlessness. So they got a group of men to range around, as they said, the colony and protect its inhabitants. That's the beginning of the Texas Rangers. They were, oh, more like a sheriff or a deputy or a posse in that day. Of course, when the uh, Texas uh, rebelled against Mexico, and in 1835 and 1836, during the Texas Revolution, the Rangers uh, served as scouts, and they often could identify the location of the Mexican force and alert the Texans, or the Texians, sometimes they call them. And so in Texas, before it was anything, it was just a colony, then when it was a nation from March 2nd, 1836, for about 10 years till it became a state, the Rangers were there. So the Rangers predate everything in Texas, all the way back to its status as a colony. When I covered Congress as a reporter, Jim Wright was the majority leader, Democrat from North Texas. He used to love to tell the story of, uh, you know, to all the Northern members and all of the story of uh, one ranger, one riot. Would you expand on that a minute? Because everybody would just love it. Well, the rangers have a number of sayings. Uh, based on something that happened, 
uh, or something that didn't happen that was prevented. And the, one of the rangers saying is, all it takes to quell a riot is one ranger. In other words, you can get uh, 20 or 50 of these other types of folks, but just one ranger standing firm can quell a riot. And uh, it's there's another saying of the rangers, you can't stop a man who's in the right that keeps on coming. And that type of mentality and toughness was certainly part of the lore and legend of the early rangers. So there was a, a, a motto that came from uh, Captain William Jesse McDonald, and it became kind of the unofficial motto at the turn of the century. And here, here's the exact statement. No man in the wrong can stand up against a fellow that's in the right and keeps on a coming. <laughs> that's right. That really kind of fits what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to go back to uh, January 22nd, 1987, West of Austin at a resort community called Horseshoe Bay. It was a very upscale community on, a, on Lake LBJ, named after the president, uh, to Bill and Lee Whitehead. Uh, Bill was a very wealthy rancher, well off, and they got a call at something around 4 a.m. in the morning. The, the Whiteheads uh, were... Folks from the Hill Country of Texas, their family had been there a long time. They're still there, some of them. And very, very beloved family that was a big ranching family. And and uh, they had a place uh, in the Hill Country, as you said. They had a, you could call her a maid or a nanny, but I think a 22-year-old woman that worked for them. And she... Uh, I wouldn't say disappeared because they didn't quite know, quite understand where she had gone, but she was not around. And uh, that caused some concern. But unfortunately, uh, mysteriously, uh, their two-year-old daughter, Kara, disappeared from the home. In other words, was in the home and and vanished without so trace. Let me back you up a minute. So as I recall, the the nanny was 22-year-old Denise Johnson, and there was a call, a mysterious call had come into uh, Mr. Whitehead's business about uh, from her saying that she thought she had been kidnapped and they wanted a ransom, and that was kind of the end of it. And then suddenly for a, a week, she's nowhere to be seen. Right. It, it was, was not enough to know what to do with, really, at the time for law enforcement. And then when their daughter... Uh, disappeared, it was obviously apparent that there was something bizarre going on in that area. Yeah, and someone that we're going to get into actually had uh, uh, a key to their home, to their resort home there, and the two-year-old Kara vanishes. She did, and now they've called not just local law enforcement, uh, the FBI office in Austin, Texas, came out with some agents. And pretty soon, uh, it became apparent that the little girl had been kidnapped for ransom, that in uh, the, the officers did not know where the kidnapper was, where the little girl was. They only knew that they, at some point, did receive a call wanting a vehicle and a suitcase of money. Yeah. brought 
uh, to the kidnapper in exchange for the little girl. So they didn't know that the kidnapper had taken the nanny's key to the Whitehead's house, and that's how he got inside to kidnap the little right. girl in the pre-dawn hours. But the bizarre thing is while everyone was asleep in the house, he snacked on food in their kitchen and sat down to smoke one of Mr. Whitehead's cigars. And then later he demanded a $30,000 ransom in $20 bills and a getaway car. He did. And, of course, uh, they didn't know at the time who he was. They didn't know anything about him. Uh, They only knew that they had the call. A plan was debated how to do this, how to get the money there and what to do about it because, uh, obviously, it was – it was dangerous. It was very unknown wh- who exactly they were dealing with. So, yeah, the FBI and the Rangers talked about what to do. The Texas Rangers, uh, John Acock out of Waco, Texas area, out of the company from Waco, and Stan Guffey from Brady and others were were involved. So Stan Guffey was a 40-year-old Texas Ranger. Uh, he had become a Ranger in 1979. Uh, Before that, he served as a Texas Highway Patrol officer, and that was a a requirement. I believe it still is today. You have to do time in the Highway Patrol or be a state trooper, as we call them today. So he'd had about 20 years in in law enforcement at that point. Um, And I look back at his record. You know, he had he'd apprehended some bad guys. He'd sent some corrupt politicians to prison, and so here he is. And tell us. The, uh, talk, expand a minute here on the source of the story. We're going to hear what we've never heard before. Well, this this is you know not my story. This is a story of the Rangers, and it's a story of Ranger Acock, and who's the most decorated Ranger in modern times, and it's of Stan Guffey, and um, Ranger Acock did a great deal of work for me through the years. I worked with him on a number of fugitive cases and others in federal court, and he's helped me on many cases from the Branch Davidian case on back to other cases involving death and drug cases, all kinds of cases. And uh, uh, this, to a large degree, is John's story, uh, something he shared with me and others from time to time, but he he is quite a guy. Well, so what we do know is that the kidnapper, we later learn, is uh, a parole violator, out on prison early. You know, later he was described as a model parolee. Well, we know how ridiculous that is because back in the parole scandal that I reported that you were involved in in covering, uh, catching Kenneth McDuff, helping prosecute corruption, this was the the excuse given over and over. And what was really going on uh, was a revolving door system to relieve prison overcrowding. Nobody was really doing much time. So it was a 22-year-old Brent Albert Beeler, and this is his plot, and he's already kidnapped the nanny, and so tell us where he is all this time. Of course, they didn't know at first. They just had a phone call, didn't know where he was. It turned out that he had taken over a vacant vacation home across the road uh, from the Whiteheads so he could see a lot of the activity that took place there with law enforcement. He was peeking underneath a garage door that was open just a little bit, and he could watch what they were doing. 
And uh, so he was ahead of them mo- most of the way here. He was ahead of them because he could tell what they were doing, who was there, what, who was coming and going. Uh, so he wants a car. What kind of car did he want? The father had a sports car, and the kidnapper wanted the sports car with money, and he demanded that the father deliver the car uh, right to where he was at this home across the way. And uh, so the FBI and the Rangers talked about how this could be done safely. Of course, it took a great deal of courage. You might understand the commitment to his daughter, but still it took courage for the father to agree to do this because of the unknown. And the Rangers had a plan to be have a ranger in the back of the car, but it was just too small. The car did not provide enough room for the ranger to be in the back and to be able to function at all, to move and and to be able to react. And uh, the, the ranger uh, was concerned about that, that it just couldn't be safely done that way. He told his captain that, the captain of the Rangers out of Waco, Texas, Company F, Bob Mitchell was the captain, a very highly regarded old sage of a Ranger captain. And his advice to the Ranger was, don't let them tell you how to do this. You need to be comfortable in doing this deal. This is dangerous enough as it is. So another plan, uh, let's get a bigger car. We'll tell the kidnapper that that small car has a problems with the engine. You don't want that car. Uh, It looks cool, sure, but you don't want that. That car is not working right. And so let's get you a better car. That did not go over well. There was some debate with the guy, but finally they said, this is the way it's got to be. So they took the back seat out of this. I think it was a Lincoln town car or something like that. They took the back seat out. Stan Guffey, as I recall, was right-handed. John Acock was left-handed, shot left-handed. So they positioned themselves where each one would have his dominant hand available. And, um, again, they didn't know what to expect. No one understood whether this was a, a, you know, some simpleton that had kidnapped and just wanted to get out of there, whether the guy was dangerous truly or not. So the plan was put together for the the father to drive the car up to the house where the kidnapper was, park it up up facing the garage to get out and then let the and see what happened essentially. The problem, of course, was how would they get the little girl? How would assuming there was no ranger in the car, if the father left the car, how did he know where the girl would be? What would happen? So that's where the rangers came in. The rangers were there to make sure that, you know, we can't trust this guy, so let's let's be there. And the father took the car. He had the briefcase of money. He drove from his place down the road, across the highway, pulled up. This was during dark. Pulled up against the garage door of the other house. Now, the lights of the car shined against the garage door and backlit the car just a little bit. So it wasn't quite as dark as they wanted. But here they wait. Father gets out, steps away. 
and then someone comes out. The rangers are under a blanket. They hear the noise of someone coming out of the house. The kidnapper, they believe, and it is, it's him. It's him. He's carrying something, a bundle. He walks to the car. He looks around, opens the door. They hear that. They're trying to peek just a little bit if they can. He leans over into the car, the kidnapper does, and he puts something in the passenger seat. Ranger Aycock, with his offhand, his right hand, feels around the seat and feels a little bottom of the girl. It's the girl. It's the girl. She's, in, she's wrapped in something. She's covered in something. It's her little rear end. He feels it. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a child. And about that time, an impossible decision is made. Do we announce who we are? Because that's what you do. You, you announce who you are. You don't, you know, you don't just leave a mystery there for, the, for whoever you're dealing with. So all things happen in a split second. The, the kidnapper is, has enough light to see that maybe something's not quite right in the car. He backs out. Of, he stands away from the car a bit. Stan Guffey yells, Rangers, give up. And about that time, this wasn't some uh, knucklehead uh, kidnapper who was just trying to make a little money. He was a killer. And he opened fire into the back seat from just outside the car with a 44 Magnum revolver. He opened fire, struck Ranger Guffey, and in a lightning stroke, Ranger Acock grabs the little girl, pulls her into the back seat, and opens fire, firing through the windshield at the killer, the kidnapper. And as a friend of mine described, he stitched him. He shot him through the windshield uh, from the crouch in the back seat and shot him from groin to gullet all the way up, and the guy fell. The little girl is now safely in the back seat. Ranger Aycock gets out to try to see what do we have here. And the kidnapper was had been shot, was laying dead or dying. Now, the shot of the kidnapper, which may have been bad luck, struck Ranger Guffey and mortally wounded him. And so an effort was made to get Ranger Guffey to the hospital. Um, they made that effort. It was unsuccessful. They did, everyone did the best they could. All right, we're going to pause right there for a brief message. And we come back, we're going to pick back up with the wounding of the Ranger. Okay, when we took a break, Bill had us just at the point where this heroic effort is made to rescue the little girl from the kidnapper and Ranger Guffey has been mortally wounded is rushed to the hospital. So uh, the FBI out of Austin, some agents um, helped rush the Ranger to the hospital as close as they could and quickly as they could. And uh, Ranger Guffey died 
um, a search of the area uh, shows that the maid had been bound, likely assaulted, and murdered, and had been dead for a couple of days. And she was in the boathouse right. behind that vacant house on That's the lake. Right. She was. Apparently her nose was broken and it was, uh, well, at some point he told, there was a brief in the discussions on the phone, he told them he'd made hamburger out of her. This is uh, not only a story of immeasurable bravery by the, by the Rangers, um, but it's a story of uh, the heart of evil, really. Uh, this guy had, this, this kidnapper, had been in prison for crimes that were not necessarily violent at the time, uh, but he learned or he had it in him to be that way. And the heartless, heartless uh, behavior to have done that to the, to the maid. And then, of course, had it not been for the rangers, there is no telling what would happen to the little girl because it had, the man put her in the car and was going to leave. Obviously, yeah, you can't trust him, of course. Well, so one thing about him, you know, his charge that he'd been in on, he didn't do much time, was for credit card theft and all. But just speak to the audience for a minute. That does not always tell you what they're really about in their criminal history and their propensity to be violent, because oftentimes these are plea bargains. It just tells you what they went to prison on. It doesn't tell you their past behavior. And not to say, again, that someone with a white-collar type crime has any propensity to violence, but it doesn't mean they don't either. It doesn't mean they don't. And this guy uh, let it all loose within just a two- or three-day period of time in the Texas Hill Country and caused heartache and grief. And had it not been for the courage of the Rangers, would have could have gotten away with it. Well, so then what they later found is that he had been living in vacant houses around there and had a bedroll, sleeping bag and everything and had an arms cache and stuff he'd been stealing. Um, where does this kind of go next and how does this affect the Rangers? Well, this, again, the Rangers I, that I know, the Rangers that I've worked with, this was the reflection of their, their character and, uh, there were only at this at the time of this there were only about 90 texas rangers in all of texas so a state that's larger than the country of france has 90 of these uh, these rangers and they were special they were the best homicide investigators uh, at any given time working and they assisted law enforcement but this wasn't is the last ranger killed in the line of duty and it was Devastating for Ranger Guffey and his family, of course, for the Rangers as a whole, Company F out of Waco, Texas, which had this group of Rangers as a part of its crew. But uh, this, no one ever got over this, and it's understandable. What was the mood of Ranger Acock, and has he told you this story, and how did that come about? Well, um, Ranger Acock uh, does not talk about himself, and he doesn't uh, boast or brag uh, at all. And he has in- endured a great deal of tough situations in his life. John 
is a Vietnam veteran, com- serious combat in yeah. Vietnam, and and had a number of uh, tough things happen to him in, on the highway patrol and then in the ranger service. But uh, John never praises himself. Uh, he's proud of the rangers, and yes. that's it. But uh, I'll just let it go at that. But uh, it's just a situation where um, great acts of bravery are are often untold because those engaged in them are not looking to tell them, not looking for credit. Uh, so they all came out of the Texas Highway Patrol. And when I was a student at Texas A&M, my dad was involved in law enforcement. And when I would go home on uh, Christmas break and all, I would ride, Do it was called a ride-along. I would ride with a highway patrol officer named Max Womack. He became a legendary Texas Ranger later. Uh, but these men, it was strictly men in those days, they were out on lonely highways in rural Texas facing <laughs> some really tough criminals, and they were alone. And they were they had to really be made of something else. But I was always struck by Max's eye for detail. We'd be going through a small town. He would see some guys coming out of it. Then he, what he was like, you know, it looks like those boys are in town for trouble. And he was always had a notebook writing their plate number, their description and everything. And, and sure enough, you know, there was a few years later that paid off because there was a escape from the county jail and, you know, they had uh, assaulted the jailers, bad guys. And sure enough, Max had kind of seen a Seen a car and suspicious, and by golly, that turned out to be them, and they got him. No wonder we made a good ranger. He, yeah, they started on the highway, uh, and very often they were the only law enforcement mm-hmm. in West Texas. You have counties; several of the counties are larger than Delaware. Yeah, and uh, you'll you'll be out there, and there's not help for a hundred miles. Right, and it does take a certain level yeah. of courage and grit to do that. Um, it's, uh, it's just a different mm-hmm. type of way of thinking. It is somewhat, um, real cowboys. I mean, real sure enough, cowboys have a toughness. They don't talk about it. No. Uh, and they just have grit. And there was a reason why the movie was called true grit. And, uh, that, that, uh, description was given to the marshal in that case. But as we know, the way the movie went out, the ranger had the same kind of grit. But quite honestly, that is, I hope we're not losing that, mm-hmm. um, but it's harder to find because it's criticized sometimes. Some Sometimes being tough, being tough, but while being extremely fair is a wonderful combination. Well, what struck me and was that he was, there was a tough, that was a tough sort of aura around the guy. But he really knew how to talk to people, size people up, uh, when to be empathetic. Uh, but I do remember I would, it, it tells you what they were up against. When I would get in the uh, patrol vehicle, there was a shotgun mounted between the passenger and driver's seat. And he'd always look at me and he goes, okay, Robert, I know you know how to use the shotgun. And if I get in trouble. You got it's on you. You got to come help me. That's right. You know uh, the Rangers. Um, many of them in my day of prosecuting in federal and state court, 
many of them were Vietnam veterans or they were of that era. Mm -hmm. And of course, the generation before that, many of them were World War II veterans. Yes. And as you and I have talked, it gives them perspective. You know, Ranger Aycock was as fair, uh, as fair, I, I mean that in every sense of the word, to people as you can imagine. And he was, he had compassion. Uh, often for people he, he, whom he arrested that found themselves in a difficult situation, maybe no fault of their own to some degree. But he was an expert hostage negotiator. And there's a case that happened a few years after this where a baby was abducted. And the kidnapper took that baby and went on a wild chase with the rangers and others. Eventually, this guy who had a sawed-off shotgun with him, went out with the baby in a field in the middle of a pasture and sat down. So there's fence lines all around. He can see as far as he wants to you know, look and make sure nobody's around them. I'm talking about the kidnapper. Had a little bitty infant with him. And John Acock, the person that saved Kara Whitehead and worked with Stan Guffey on this horrible, horrible deal, he walked his way around in that case years after this, around the fence line, and let the man, let the kidnapper see him. And the kidnapper saw him and pointed the gun at him and talked bad to him. And John said, I, I just want to talk to you. John walked out in the field and sat cross legged a few feet from the kidnapper holding a sawed-off shotgun, and John had no apparent weapon on him. He might have had one in his boot, but he had nothing he could get to easily. And he talked to the kidnapper, and finally the kidnapper said, I've got to go. I, I'm going to that farm down there. You, you'll need to leave me alone. And John said, I can't let you do that. Can't let you do that. And the kidnapper, he's talking about an aura of, of grit and toughness. The kidnapper, within a few minutes, handed the baby to John. And John peacefully arrested him and walked him down. It, it is a, uh, I've said about John, he's touched. And I mean that in the most flattering way. He's touched. There's something that emanates from him. Uh, and perhaps it's his nature and perhaps it's all he's seen and done in his career. But anyway... Um, that's who you're dealing with, yeah. and that's what happened in this case. Well, and then, of course, it looks like, in one sense, a happy ending. The the little two-year-old girl has been rescued. Uh, the Whiteheads uh, moved to another place. Uh, Bill Whitehead, the rancher, is also a musician, and he's writing a, a, a composition and a score for the, uh, oh, I think it was the Austin uh, Ballet, uh, kind of giving back, and they, they said apparently the, the music would help him calm his nerves because you know that this kind of trauma has had an impact. But six years later, the family flies out to Pebble Beach for a golf tournament. Kara and the wife are dropped off um, at a ski resort near Portland, Oregon, and then they're all on the plane coming home. Everybody but the brother. Yes. Everybody but the brother. The 10-year-old brother. They, they're coming home in their aircraft and they leave and I think after refueling, maybe in New Mexico and Kara, who's now eight, I think, yes. and mom and the dad with their pilot, the aircraft flies right in the side of a mountain, kills them all. 
and uh, how that could be the ending after this story and this effort to save Kara, none of us as humans yeah. can understand. I don't think but that was, is the way it ended. Those rangers snatched her from the jaws of death. And then this. Right. And, you know, uh, Mr. Whitehead and his courage to do what he had to do to save his daughter. I know that that family, uh, the brother now uh, uh, still lives in Texas, I believe, but they, you know, they are a special, special family that have endured so much. And uh, I only know a little bit of the story, but uh, tribute to them. Well, Bill, that's quite the rest of the story. I want to go back and revisit our last episode. We're we're doing this episode in the week of November 9th, 2020. And our last episode was about so-called bail reform, which we were seeing was like the lenient. And and we reported that in Dallas County, there were 25 capital murder defendants out on bail. I, I told about how Shots were exchanged between uh, Grand Prairie officers and a violent offender out on bail. And now this week, uh, Sergeant Sean Rios, a Houston police officer, was murdered in a traffic stop. He had witnessed road rage between two vehicles in Houston, and there were shots being fired. And he pulled them over, and he approaches the car, and he is gunned down by a 24-year-old man who um, had been arrested earlier for carrying a weapon in a motor vehicle. He was released on $100 bail, $100 bail. He already had been alleged to have threatened his girlfriend back in 2017. I mean, it was all there. If you saw his picture, he's got all the gang tattoos on his face, complete neck, and someone let him out for $100. I mean, that was that officer's life worth a hundred dollars? It's so important when we look at the, our police and court system to recognize we need to do a better job. Absolutely. But when it comes to letting people out of prison and letting people out on bail, we have got to pause and think about that because we're letting people out with, with almost no punishment. In other words, they might be out 30 minutes or 45 minutes after they're arrested for something really yeah. serious. And we're rewarding them. And people, just human nature, particularly with someone that has an evil heart like this, you're rewarding them and you're in, encouraging them really to do it again. And we have to be very careful. We are going to repeat the history of Kenneth McDuff, uh, this killer down at uh, the Hill Country of Texas we just talked about, other killers that we'll talk about in the future who were let out early. We have to protect society from these folks. Bill, thank you. That's uh, this week's edition of Justice Facts. We'll be back next week with more stories from our respective careers. Thank you. Justice Facts is co-hosted by Robert Riggs and Bill Johnston. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Original music by Blair King. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Additional music by Stan Woodward. Justice Facts is a copyrighted production produced by True Crime Reporter.